0: This is the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Season 4, Episode 6. Today I am very pleased as punched to be able to give you my interview with uh, J.P. McMahon, who's written the Irish cookbook produced by Faden Press this year. Um, it's a phenomenal cookbook, and <clears throat> I, I, I hasten to call it just a cookbook because... Although, you know, after talking to so many authors, looking at so many cookbooks over the last few years, I feel like the face and the shape and the, and the soul of the cookbook has changed largely, and it's become something other. The Irish cookbook is a phenomenal piece of work. Not only is it just an incredible cookbook of Irish cuisine, uh, but it also touches on history, um, the uh, indigenous uh, food of Ireland, and the culture, and so much more, so... Um, i really can't recommend this book enough it's just a beautiful beautiful book and i think you should go out and purchase it immediately you're gonna love it um not only for the great recipes but the beautiful photography and design and just the text uh, jp mcmahon has written quite a bit of uh text for the uh, cookbook he talks a lot about the subject of irish food so if you're at all interested in this and you should be uh you definitely want to take a take a look at this uh the vegetable production and the cookbook is fantastic the use of the incorporating the use of indigenous uh, berries uh, plants, vegetables, things like seaweed uh, make a big uh, addition to the cookbook, and uh, and that's something that's becoming very exciting in uh, food around the world right now. Um, in addition, the baking uh, parts of it that I've always liked about Irish uh, food is is in there as well, and it's very prominent. So definitely check that out. Uh, he's also you know writes quite a bit online. He writes for the irish times every sunday um so you want to you know basically check him out um he has four restaurants we're going to be talking about in ireland so um i really want to hasten to get to the interview part because you're going to enjoy my conversation with jp mcmahon and here we go welcome to the well-seasoned librarian podcast My name is Dean Jones, the Well-Seasoned Librarian, and today I'm blessed to have on our podcast, J.P. McMahon. He's a writer of the wonderful Irish cookbook by Faden. And it's a new cookbook this year, and um, it's beautiful. It's glorious. I recommend you to get it as soon as possible. J.P., thank you for being on the show. Now for our um, guests who are not familiar with your work, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: I can. Uh, I'm a bit of a mixed bag now, so I will say that uh, at uh, at the outset. I mean, I'm a chef and restaurant tour. I've been a, um, a chef since I was 15. Uh, restaurant tour since 2008. Uh, as you said in your introduction, I'm a writer as well. Both a food writer and a, a bit of an academic as well. And. Uh, I suppose we have we have we have three restaurants in in Galway in the west of Ireland, very close to each other. Uh, one, two are right across the road from each other, and another is about 500 meters away. And I suppose over the last 10 years or so, we've tried to make Galway and and Ireland um, a more recognisable place for food, both nationally and, and internationally.
0: Well, and also, I when I was looking up and doing research on you for the questions, I saw that you're a, quite a prolific writer as well. Um, you have quite a lot of output and you have a regular article um, that I could see, that, I, that I've seen online. Um, I just wanted to ask uh, yeah, you, uh, yeah. how, how did this yeah, all actually, come about for you? You've had actually, quite a last year, few years, haven't you?
1: Yeah, I actually, sorry, I forgot that I write weekly for the Irish Times. Sometimes I forget myself when I'm a, uh, when it's due in, but uh, I do a yeah, weekly column for the, the National Newspaper. And yeah, like as I said, um, I mean, the last two years have been, have been difficult. I mean, for, for everyone in hospitality and probably for everyone in general. I mean, our, our flagship restaurant, Anier, which has a one Michelin star. I mean, we closed that for 18 months during the pandemic because, well, most of our guests, <laughs> most of our guests are, are American or were American. And um, we just couldn't foresee opening the restaurant in the middle of pandemic when there was no travel. So, like, they, they, it has changed slightly after the pandemic. We have a bit more Irish people in, but we're still very dependent in Ireland and in Galway on North American, North American tourists. So it, it was difficult, um, kind of, in the restaurant industry because Galway only has 80,000 people, and a million people might go through Galway at any given season uh, in terms of tourists. So there it, it was a big gap to, I uh, suppose, to, uh, to fill.
0: Now, how did you begin um, your life as a chef? What, where was the crossroads moment for you when you decided to pursue being a chef and a restaurant owner?
1: Um, I suppose I, I never felt I decided. Um, I, I suppose things gradually happened. I mean, I loved cooking in, in school. I, I, I did home economics in secondary school. I, my first job as a 15-year-old was within was in um, a kitchen, and I I liked um, I liked cooking, and I kind of went back and forth between cooking and um, I went to going to college as a, as a as a mature student in uh, in Cork in 2002 to do English and Art History, and and, and at, at that point I would have been what 20, in my early 20s. I really thought I wasn't going to cook again, and I began cooking three or four years later and, and kind of went between studying a little bit, kept cooking. And it wasn't really, I suppose, until we opened um, our, our Cabo Bodega in 2008 that I really committed to this is my life um, as a as a chef and as a restaurateur. Because I suppose being a chef is, is intense enough, but I suppose opening a restaurant, it becomes very much 24-7. And that was when I had to, I suppose, commit to, uh, to, to that. But I suppose I've always liked to combine food and writing and food and, I suppose, and its representation through their various different mediums, whether it's video or photography or, um, or even podcasts like we're doing now where we have a podcast for our symposium called Food and the Edge. And that, I mean, I suppose I love engaging with the, the stories that food brings up and, I suppose, have come around when people travel for food or, or people engage with food.
0: Now you've studied English and art history at the University of College Cork. What inspired you to follow this educational path?
1: Um, like I've always loved writing. I mean, for, my, my love of writing and literature probably predates my love of cooking in terms of whether it's poetry or plays or, or, um, or books. And I, I suppose I, I, I went. I always saw writing as a pastime while I was a chef, um, because I suppose that there's only so many jobs you can you can do as a, as a writer. So um, I, I went back to college as a mature student to, I suppose, follow that love. And I've always loved um, art in terms of painting and photography, and I, I wanted to to, um, to study it. And I suppose it has informed, particularly. It has helped me write better and um, the various books that I've, I've written um, and, uh, and the articles. I mean, I see, I see it much more holistically now. I mean, I'm 43 now. I mean, when I was studying art history in English, I thought it was so, so removed from, from cooking. And I was like, I, could, I, could, I, I really struggled to bring them together. I was like, cooking on the weekends, college during the week. And I was like, and then if you talk to the English and art history people about cooking, about professional chefing, they probably wouldn't have much to say. And likewise if you go in and talk to the professional chefs and talk to them about going to some exhibition, they are like we're too busy to, to talk over this. But I, I feel whether whether I have just matured or whether society has matured, um, now I feel the two of them are much more uh in harmony. And I suppose even when we did the, the fight on book um twenty well last year, twenty twenty, um I the the photography, the text the way it looks like all of that came into play and, and I actually felt like oh this is um this is really fitting together and I mean Fidon were were my first choice uh to approach because Fidon published beautiful art history books and I've used them for many many years and I love I love the way they design books that was one of my my key my key things and the, the way they make a book uh, uh, as opposed to just reading it and so um I I still I mean I still love English and art history and I, I just uh, submitted a PhD in in um in in drama um in my spare time and uh as you do. But um uh, I did that over the last four years and COVID helped because if COVID helped that helped me finish um finish my uh, my PhD. So I, I mean I still I, I would always say I'm like I wouldn't say I'm confused, but like I'm certainly uh, a chef that sits slightly outside the normal box of being a chef in terms of, I wouldn't like to call myself academic or intellectual, but I just like to see food as, as more than just sitting down to, to eat.
0: Well, going on that tact, I'd like to talk about the, the cookbook because I almost, I, I hesitate to call it just a cookbook because it's a very important book and there's a lot of writing in it. That's very palpable. That's very real. And it's I I would just I don't want to dismiss. I mean, cookbooks. I love cookbooks, and I I would never uh, use cookbooks as like you know, as a lesser term. But like it, it's a, it's a it's a big book. It's more than a cookbook, though. It really talks about history and culture, and the, the, also the uh, the food of Ireland and the, the food that's like indigenous to Ireland and it talks about history. I mean, and it's also just a gorgeous, gorgeous book in and of itself. How did you come to conceptualize and write the book? Where, where did this come from?
1: Um, I suppose it began, I mean, it began when we opened the um 10 years ago and they started, they decided to look into indigenous foodstuffs in Ireland, so whether it was wild seaweed or herbs or, or uh, different wild birds, wild fish, like all of the uh, salmon, which everyone knows, but wild salmon. A lot of things that, I suppose, for me, people took for granted because when you think of Irish food, generally you think about stews or things that are hearty. And, and we, 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 I suppose, over the, over the years in the near have, have investigated uh, what Irish food was and, and also what it can be, very much inspired by the Nordic food revolution, that took place in the Nordic countries from about 2005 uh, about trying to produce a cuisine from, from your native ingredients or from like, well, 80 to 90% native ingredients. There's always things that you need from, from the outside, um, <coughs> the outside world like um, sugar or um, lemons or these things that your country just doesn't produce. But we, we, we began this process and, uh, and over time we, we, we refined it. And then we, I suppose the, just before the I suppose we 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 before I started writing the book, I we started putting this this symposium on called Food on the Edge, which which I briefly mentioned. And really in a nutshell, it brings about 50 chefs or industry professionals over to Ireland to showcase Ireland, Irish food, culture. So many, many different chefs and industry professionals, some very, very famous, some some lesser known. And I suppose I got talking to Fidon, um, I think at the second or third year, so about 2017, and there wasn't any Bible, so to speak, um, in Irish, in, in, on Irish food. I mean, Fidon published these books on different countries, so they have an Italian one, a Spanish one. Uh, they have a Japan, one on Japan and one on China. And initially, <coughs> excuse me, Initially, um, they said, God, like, there, there couldn't be that many recipes in Ireland. I mean, they're like, they're, I mean, there must be like a handful. And the 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 the, the, the book has four hundred and eighty recipes in it. And actually, there was another four hundred that didn't fit in the book because I because I wrote too much. And they said, Do you want all the words or do you want more recipes? And I said, No, I want to keep the words. And that's as you said, like it is. There's a lot of text in there because I suppose I feel or I felt it necessary to try and inform the, the reader or the, or the cook that like each section in the book, and there's a lot of history to different um, ingredients in Ireland. So whether it's wild duck or whether it's eggs or whether it's dairy or simple things like dessert. And I try to fold that history into the process, not in an academic way, but in a way that maybe when you make the dessert, you feel God, yeah, I am engaging in a in a tradition, something as simple as say, uh, bread and butter pudding, which, I mean, most, unfortunately, most of the, the the Irish dishes that people take for granted. And they're just kind of like, oh, yeah, that, that's just a dish. But we have to remember that every time people cook uh, at home and, and, and they cook over time and over the years and then over the decades. I mean, these things become historical. And that's what fascinated me. I mean, the oldest recipe book in Ireland is from only from 1688. So everything before 1688 is 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 mentions of food stuff, but that we don't have any recipes predating. So that's only 400 years ago, and people have been in Ireland for 10,000 years. So we really don't know an awful lot, other than say through archaeological digs where they find okay people let beef here, people let oysters there. I mean, how do they cook it? How do they eat it? A lot of it is 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 guesswork, and I suppose I find that fascinating that. I mean, for the vast majority of the history of Ireland, we've actually have no written record. but ninety percent of the time, we have no written record um of of um of what or how people combine things. And I suppose that's the the artistic license that I I suppose take in the book. So I say, look, well we have oysters and seaweed and they both we've both been here ten thousand years and like maybe that there's no reason to to say that people did not eat um Oysters and seaweed together, and that, and so uh, that's, I suppose, um, the 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 modus operandi of the of the book. And it took four years to write, from from about 2017 to to um, uh, 2020. Um, 2016, was was the, was the very first the kind of this very first uh, recipes that, that we started to write and um yeah like i mean there's enough there's enough there for a whole sequel i've I've written a fish book in lockdown just on on recipes that were left over and i um it's about trying to again i suppose um uh, start the whole process again but look at the moment the book is the book is selling well i think it's sold about twenty five thousand copies worldwide and i mean that's credit to fight on as well their distribution system is, is is very very good so I mean I will wait a year or two and and then see uh, will we enlarge the project and really any section of the book and if there's any of your listeners who want to write a book on Irish food like any section in that book could be amplified to a book like I really we edited down so much and you could write a uh, a book on 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 milk in Ireland and there's there's so much um, so much there.
0: It's it's such a beautiful book and I loved all the recipes in that. I loved reading them and getting a sense of what what, um, Irish cooking is like. And I've read other books before. I have lots of other books, but this was, I think, the best I've ever seen. And did you feel that somebody needed to kind of address the idea? Because many people in the West don't know. We don't know over here in America, usually what Irish people cook or eat. And I think that usually if we get... A book on it it's usually kind of twee and maybe like meant to be a gift or something and it's got you know a handful of recipes like you said so did you want to kind of address that and like talk to the world and say this is you know this is our food this is our our heritage
1: yeah absolutely so and i completely agree with you in the sense that i suppose the way that we have marketed irish food probably since uh, our independence maybe since the, the 1920s and we have kind of treated it as a lesser thing and and used it as a as a, as a vehicle to get people to Ireland to, to do something else to look at the scenery to engage in the history of their family and that and other than say a few books like we could say Serena Allen or Myrtle Allen who are um, uh, very I suppose famous food writers in and of themselves or maybe Theodore Fitzgibbon, there, there's been a few, but four or five writers in the 20th century that have tried to do um, what I did, and, 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 and I use their books, and also um, I, um, I make reference to their books a lot, but I suppose the problem was was that a lot of times these books were published internally in Ireland, and they, it was never, they were never, I suppose, they, were, they weren't considered as much um, <clears throat> uh, for the the export market and, and they never made it to the to the states. i mean one or two doreen has, um, probably made it or i know coleman andrews did a, a food of ireland uh, book as well but i, I think by and large uh, like a book addressing ireland as a, as a as an entity um i think was um was missing and i suppose i felt that um i felt that i wanted to try and address this particularly for an international audience and particularly for a north american audience
0: now, as I've said um, before, it's a beautiful book. Like it, it is visually arresting. Now, there was some production work that was done by, the design was done by Julia Hastings. And I know that Phaedon uh, usually does really beautiful books. How much of a hand did you have in the look of the book as, like an, as somebody who studied art?
1: Well, I suppose, I mean, Judith did most of the, the, the stuff for the book and I suppose I, I suppose was there to say I like it and I like the way it works in the book and uh, the font. And, but everything was supposed important to us. Um, like, uh, as I said, the, the way in which the, the recipes were, were written, the font, the amount. I would have loved to get more photographs in, but unfortunately, as they kept saying to me, the more photographs, the less text. So and I kept saying no, no, we have to keep this text in, and also the the end of the book with the index of wild food um, is quite long, and I had I had wanted originally to have that illustrated, so I would have loved to have like an illustration of the um, uh, of the seaweeds and the mushrooms and the wild herbs, but unfortunately we just ran out of space. And like if you look through the wild the wild food index, you'll find that there's loads of recipes embedded in that, and so there's 480 in the book, but Sometimes when there was a small recipe, for say, I don't know, rose dip, they said, "Well, just how about just put that into the rose dip index and say this is what you can do with it." So, um, so it was, it, it was, I suppose, an effort to try and cram as much in as possible because I, was, I suppose, I was afraid that, well, what if I don't get another chance to to do this and we we need to um to to it to to address this. So um but look I mean in spite of COVID I mean the book literally came out at the beginning of COVID like March 2020 and um in spite of that it still has like um has uh we sold an awful lot during lockdown um they're the, the, all they're whatever they're available they sell well and like it, it is great to I suppose to talk to people saying as you said they never realized that Irish food had such depth to it and uh, had such history, and I suppose I, I, the book is an encouragement for any country to write about their um um write about their their food their food culture because I suppose we have viewed food through the lens of the empires, whether that's France or Italy or Spain or England, and I suppose lesser lesser countries or the colonies have said, well, we don't have a food culture, we borrowed everything, but. I think wherever there are people, there is a food culture, and even if that, even if we say well, Irish, English, Scottish, and Welsh food culture are similar, they could all still write independent books and have many, many different variations. I mean, you could, you could, European cooking is is there's a lot of similarities in it, but there are still dishes where that you will find, um, like in the book, that would have might have been made in in Kerry in the like southwest of Ireland that would not have been made uh, anywhere else, and I suppose that's the beauty of of the, the regionality of food and, and how every time you, you make a recipe, it, over time it changes. And uh, when you pass the recipe down to, or you give it to a friend, like they might change it and then they might pass it on again and change it again. And then and, and that's the beauty of, uh, of the, the, the personality of cooking.
0: I'm so glad you included so many photographs because to me, it was really important seeing them. I've read some recipes that are in your cookbook and other cookbooks. And I've had no, usually there's no photos ever, almost ever in, a, in an Irish cookbook that I, when I've seen them. And it's like, I really would like to have been able to see what the item looks like. But so many of the, like the way you tackle game meat and vegetables, it's so exciting. And just the simple recipe of uh, asparagus wrapped in sea lettuce it makes, it kind of excites you and makes you go, I wanna try that, that looks amazing. And there's so many really wonderful recipes in here and getting a chance to visually see them I think is really helpful to somebody who might wanna tackle it themselves.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting you you picked that recipe because we had we had a we had a little bit of a I wouldn't say we had a fight we had a disagreement uh, because I, I I had I had too much seaweed in the book and by them were saying look this is a very specific ingredient to Ireland and what if you can't get it in North America and I was like oh, you can buy it in Whole Foods or whatever and like they said people are not going to be down on the beach picking sea uh, picking seaweeds but for me like if you look if you if you if you take an overview of the book there are there are recipes that are traditional, and that's like your brown bread and your lamb stews, and then there are recipes that are possibly historic, um, and so some game recipes like venison that actually we can date back to a specific time. There are some are, that are, are, are imaginative, like say when we look back 8,000 years ago and said, okay, people ate wild sea bass, and then I have to just guess, well, okay, how did they eat it? Um, and then there's ones that have been influenced by a near by I suppose our own cooking and that asparagus wrapped in sea lettuce is very much I suppose uh, for me it speaks very much of, of contemporary Irish food that it's it's very light it's it's it, um it's very of the um, of the west of Ireland asparagus season is so short in Ireland but the sea lettuce is really nice and it, it's just a nice um, um a nice little thing to do and and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely it's a lovely talking point and um, and getting that, getting that image in, there was, was a funny story about that, that image because it wasn't one of the recipes that got picked. So we had 900 recipes and there was six, uh, 300 went out the window. And when we had 600 and then we had to get them down to 450. And then I said, you know what? If we photograph this asparagus with sea lettuce, we can just pretend that it was picked. And we'll just, we'll just say, oh, I didn't know it wasn't picked. But we'll make the photo so nice that will make sure that they pick it. And they went, God, I love that photo. And they said, let's put it in the box. Um, and, and so there was always this kind of um, push and pull about me putting in too much seaweed and fight on guns. Of course, they know how to sell books. And they were like, listen, we have to. And so it is a, it's, it's, a, it's a good marriage. And, and, that, and that is, look, that's what an editor is for. Um, an editor is, is to, I suppose, to rein in your creative spirit because sometimes uh, creative artists, never stop uh, creating and she's like you have to stop we have enough recipes stop looking for more recipes let's get down to the editing and and of course for me that's the like it's that's not the most interesting it's kind of like, no 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 i want to keep cooking i want to make more recipes and they were like no no we have enough no you're you're not sending any more in and so yeah no i really enjoyed my time with them
0: you had a great um episode on uh, food on the edge um that talked about seaweed and it coincided, I think, with so many cooks in America taking up the, uh, the challenge of cooking with seaweed. And I think that in the Bay Area here where I'm at, um, I live near the ocean. So there's a lot of recent people that are starting to sell seaweed at farmers markets. It's being sold everywhere here and people are wanting to eat it and cook with it. And it's becoming something that's considered a culinary must for like good health here.
1: Yeah, and actually, I just literally about half an hour before we were talking, I saw Alice Waters posting about seaweed producers in the Bay Area uh, who are out foraging huge bits of kelp. I mean, yeah. I mean the, the Pacific is warmer than the mm-hmm. West of Ireland, and so the seaweed is going to grow more. And, and that's, I suppose, that for me, the, the downside of being in the cold sometimes is that, okay, we do get some beautiful small seaweed, but we don't get that lovely long kombu and kelp that, that the japanese use and i remember cooking in in toronto two or three years ago and you get the seaweed folded like a blanket and it's just like it's like wrapped really nicely and i i, I remember sending it a picture to our seaweed um producer a seaweed farvester because he usually just takes it and gets it i get it dried in black bags and i was like would you like to you should wrap your seaweed and sell it in little packages and he was like would you ever leave me alone um and uh so I, 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 the Japanese treat seaweed like gold, and we treat it like I don't know, like you just throw it onto the back of a tractor and then drop it into someone. And I was like, God, like I mean, if, but I we're still we're we're learning, you know. And I think that we can we can learn about how to treat seaweed better and and to give it more uh, more value. Because I suppose for most people still, seaweed is just something that gets washed ashore and it's it's annoying and it smells and. It's really unfortunate because not only, as you said, for health, for nutrition, but for flavor and taste, it's just, it has so many possibilities. And um, for, from wrapping stuff, wrapping fish, wrapping asparagus, chopping it up and putting it into stews, like there, there's so much you can do with it. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news,
0: I did touch on just re- just now uh, food on the edge podcast, which is a magnificent podcast. Can you talk about how you, you began to start the food on the edge podcast?
1: Yeah, I suppose we we um, we started it with um, I think we did we started before lockdown, or actually, we might have started it um, after um, um, after or I suppose once the pandemic had begun had began uh, we might have done a few episodes before that but i suppose we it was another way of um uh, of communicating and and another way of, ta- of telling the story not only of irish food but then uh, some of the last ones we've did we've interviewed different different chefs from around the world and and try to i suppose put um more personality and voice into um into cooking and i, I suppose i've really enjoyed it um um, and I, I think it's a podcast are a wonderful vehicle at the moment to to communicate to people because you, you put them out into cyberspace and all of a sudden someone contacts you from halfway across the world and says, oh, I, li- I heard your podcast. And I, I really like that. And even though it's, it's not about for us, it's not about uh, listenership or in terms of like figures and that we, we produce them um a couple of hundred people listen to them. But for me, it's, it's just another way to talk about food and, and to, to try and encourage people to see food as, um, as, a, as something that's experiential, as opposed to just you eat it when you're hungry. You know, it's, it's a cultural thing, it's a historical thing. And if we don't, I suppose, nurture it, we, we won't always have it. And, and I think that's, uh, that's uh, something that, um, that's important.
0: Now you are the culinary director of the Eat Galway restaurant group. Can you tell us about the Eat Galway group?
1: Yeah, no, um we um we started again I suppose a bit like my um chefing career. Uh we we just I suppose Eco we uh, grew grew organically. Um and um we um we started Cava in, 2000, in 2008 um and that was our I suppose a tapas restaurant we wanted to do I suppose bring a, a taste of Spain to Ireland but also a taste of uh, or the way that the Spanish ate, and that was by sharing food, and I suppose eating a bit later. And I suppose anyone who's been to Ireland, if you're eating late in Ireland, you generally have a very few options. Most of the time it's a chip shop um, or a kebab. And we always wondered when we were in Spain, God, why don't we have a culture of eating late at night where people sit down, have a glass of wine, and have some charcuterie and cheese or some olives and that. And so th- they were some of the ideas that, we wanted to explore. So that was 2008. And then in 2011, the restaurant next door to Cava closed. And so I suppose we just said, we will we doing another restaurant? I don't ask me why we, we, um, uh, we, we decided this, but we, we did. And, and that was very much at the height of the, where the Nordic, the influence of the Nordic food movement in terms of looking at indigenous food. And we said, well, why don't we do a restaurant based on this? It was a very small restaurant and um, we opened it kind of like as a bistro um with a very small menu and the following year we the restaurant won a Michelin star and, and that kind of like was an av- like an avalanche hitting the restaurant <clears throat> and it very much uh we had to change an awful lot of things because it, I suppose it brought a broad international spotlight to the restaurant and to our to our other restaurants and and, and I suppose over those years and with tartare now as well we i suppose we branded the restaurant eat galway because i suppose we wanted to see them as well I suppose when people come to galway they want they need to eat and we would like to facilitate food at every level so i was never just interested in opening a fine dining restaurant or opening um a tapas restaurant that only served this and for me i i love food and i love the different ways that you the different things that you can do with food and whether that's a cup of coffee and a croissant in the morning. Uh, and of course, I put some seaweed in the croissant or um, some lunch, some you know, nice soup and sandwiches, and then some tapas or then a, a tasting menu. Like all of these things are, are what makes a food culture. I suppose that's, I suppose, for, for me, what, what Eat Galway is about.
0: So I wanted to ask you also, I've been looking at pictures of your Food on the Edge symposium online, and it looks really exciting. Can we talk a little bit about the Food on the Edge symposium that you're having yearly?
1: Yeah, um, it's I suppose. I, and, and ironically, I mean, the, the, the genesis of Food on the Edge came out of a uh, little bit of time I spent in North America. One was in Charleston when I cooked in Charleston with about 14 or, or 20 international chefs. We spent a week in Charleston with Sean Brock. Uh, we, we got this tour of Charl- of Charleston, like the different food ways foodways, um, the history of, of food there. And and it got me thinking, saying, like, why don't we do this in Ireland? I mean, we have great ingredients, but why don't we bring chefs to Ireland? And another event I was at was called Terroir up in Toronto, which is a symposium that kind of gave people 15, 20 minutes to talk about what they do. And com- I combined those two things and, and, uh, and said, well, why don't we put on an event where we invite 50 or so chefs or industry professionals or a farmer or a winemaker and, and allow them to tell their story um, and, uh, and then also bring the visiting chefs, uh, a, 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 do a little culinary tour and show them our ingredients, bring them out to some of the farms, out to a uh, say a chicken farmer or a duck farmer uh, have a meal at the farm and what I realised was not only do I suppose we, we lack confidence in, in, in selling ourselves in Ireland and, 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 and talking ourselves up in terms of our food we, we also underappreciate I suppose the natural beauty of being small and, and that's something I think we just take for granted that a lot of times we see it as a negative thing we see it like uh, being a small country small roads um, small uh, small everything and I remember there was a chef over from, from Boston and he said to me God you just don't get roads like this in America and this was a small country road that no one would take any notice of and it was the first time I looked at it and said you know that's actually a very beautiful thing um, as opposed to giving out about it saying we need to knock this small road down and build a bigger road and, 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 and that's what we've tried to do um, over the last what well, it's since 2015 so over the last six years and this year we we moved it to Dublin, um, and put it on in an urban farm in in um uh, in Dundrum called Airfields, which is a great example of um of urban farming. Um, really, really, a lot of Irish people don't even know about it, but it's very much up there with anything that Dan Barber or Alice Waters are, are doing, and and again, it's I suppose just because we don't sing about it enough, and we don't say, look, this is a we're world leaders in this, and and so. It's, uh, it's, it's really about shining a light on Ireland uh, for the benefit of ourselves and, and also for the, for the visiting speakers and delegates.
0: I wanted to ask you about your um, restaurant Cava Bodega. You opened it in 2008 and it was your, was your first restaurant. What was the experience li- like opening um, Cava um, in Galway? And uh, w- what has been your experience with the restaurant
1: Yeah, and, uh, uh, I suppose Kava is a, is a powerhouse now. Uh, can you hear me, sorry?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, sorry, I, I, I thought I lost your second. Yeah, like Kava is a powerhouse now. It's like a, like a monster. It's like those couple of hundred people a day sometimes. But ironically, when we opened it first in 2008, nobody got the idea of Kava. No one got the no- Like They were like, what do you mean we have to share? Like, why is stuff smaller? Um, no, I don't like this. Because uh, Irish people are like, I want my food in front of me and it's mine and I'm not sharing it. And I, I don't want to, why is this one coming first? Because I don't want it first. And like, it literally took two years. And I remember, like if you say, for example, like Cabot might do 400 people on Saturday. I remember days where we would do eight people all day. And and really, I would question going. Are we doing the right thing here? I don't know. I mean, maybe we should go back to doing à la carte and main courses. Then. but we got a review in the, in the Irish Times um, uh, in 2010, and um, by a, a restaurant critic called Tom Dorley, and he said like this is a great place to go to. And um, ever since then, we, we we never looked back, and it it's um, it's been um, it's been a wonderful journey exploring food um, in ireland and, and and we published a book uh, cava a taste of spain in ireland which we're actually we're publishing the fourth edition fourth edition now with a book we published ourselves in house um, with my sister who's a graphic designer and um the i suppose i still see cava as the as the as the, as the beginning of so much not only in terms of the renaissance of, 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 uh, of, uh, of a food culture in, in, in Galway. And there were certainly other restaurants that, that, that played a part. We were just one restaurant among many. But for me, Cava led to so many more things. I mean, without Cava, we would not have opened an ear. Without Cava, we, with we published our book, I would have not got my column on the Irish Times. Without my column in the Irish Times, we wouldn't have got more international attention. Without an ear, we wouldn't have got Food on the Edge. And and then without, without Food in the Edge, we wouldn't have got a fight on book. So all of the, uh, for me, in spite of like the focus being now on Irish food culture in Ireland, all of this began with a, a kind of small Spanish restaurant that we opened. Uh, to, to bring a little sunshine to Galway uh, and Galway can get a lot of rain and, um, uh, and it certainly doesn't get a lot of heat so, uh, so for me it was about kind of transforming Galway and we've had so many Spanish people work through the restaurant now and we've developed so many interesting historical uh, connections with, uh, with Spain over time and the different connections that I never even realised um, over the last five or 600 years that Ireland had with Spain that um that i suppose people had forgotten or people just hadn't paid any attention to so lots of things we realized after the fact um but i think also one other important points to to make is that tava was the first place where we started working with local farmers the farmers just came to us and said do you want to buy my chicken i i have a farm 10 or 15 kilometers away do you want to buy my beef i'm i'm here uh and then once you start working with a few farmers then more farmers come and then the sheep yogurt farmer comes along and and, and then you say, well, my friend has a restaurant down the road. They might take some as well. Or my other friend has a restaurant down here. And that's how it all just snowballed. And now, I mean, Goy might have 40 restaurants. Um, and and so many of them are using local produce. And, and I think you, you probably went through the exact same thing in the, in the Bay Area in the, like, 90s or noughties where, yeah, this explosion of local food. Um, and I think that's what... Uh, Ireland, I mean, d- developed, um, I suppose, developed um, um, on top of that. And, 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 and hopefully Galway, people will come to Galway and we will influence other other food cultures to, to look at us and say, wow, it's a small town, but we can do it as well.
0: I um, wanted to also ask you about your restaurant, Aneer, um, and how it's inspired. It's in the Galway's West End and the food is inspired by the West of Ireland. Can you tell me about your menu and the food you create for ear?
1: Yeah, so we have a we have a tasting menu in ear Now we 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 didn't always, and I suppose now we have a an eighteen course tasting menu of little small plates. But when we opened first, it was very much in uh, <coughs> a traditional à la carte menu with um, um with five starters, five main courses, and, and and five desserts. And over time, we refined it and. I suppose tried to focus on what was what what we were essentially were doing, and that was to showcase ingredients. And so the ingredient, the menu is very ingredient led. Like even for say example, even tonight now we got some we got some tuna, so that's going on as a tuna tartare, blackberries are in season. So we pressed the blackberries with some smoked blackberry vinegar that's produced by a local a local vinegar maker, uh, and then we're going to finish it with a, a little. Um, some sea herbs and a little um, local caviar and so all of the main ingredients um like 95 percent of them are from Ireland and and that's what we're supposed that's what with each dish that's what we're trying to do we're trying to say well how do we encapsulate the west of Ireland in 18 small dishes that start off as little canapes and go into shellfish and then vegetables and meat and then back out through the through the sweet side into into the petty fours and like we're, I still see the rest, but restaurant as as a as a, as, um, as, as as being um, as as being in development. We're open ten years, but I find where we are now. Um, I find we are in a much stronger place after the pandemic. Maybe because we closed for eighteen months, and we had time to reflect on what exactly are we doing. I mean, it's a very small restaurant. some twenty seats in the restaurant, and we really try and focus on on customer experience. We have a Gorgeous wine list um, uh, of our organic and natural wines, and so the focus is very much on the experience of the guest in, in terms of the food, but also the, the narrative of the that the food. I suppose that the food has. Uh, we have little poems interspaced in the food, like a poem on a bread, and a poem on um, on oysters, like by from Seamus Heaney, and um, yeah, I like to fold the literary and the theatrical into it in very in very subtle ways
0: that's wonderful I, I i'm very curious to find out about some people you've read um and some of the authors that you enjoy um tar- you also have a restaurant uh, Tartar cafe and wine bar
1: yeah this is uh, someone once described it very well they said they said it was it was like if kava and anir had a baby it would be like Tartar. <laughs> and because what it is is that it's the kind of it's the ethos of anir in, in the shape of, um, of tasting plates. And so, I mean, initially when we opened tartare, uh, it was, I, I wanted to, to do oysters and beef tartare. And they were kind of like, because there are two things that we do well in Ireland and they are very underrepresented. <laughs> so uh, my wife was saying, you're ne- a restaurant that sells beef tartare and oysters is never going to survive. You're not in New York. Uh, you're in the West of Ireland and you better think of a better, a longer menu. Uh, with something more accessible than just beef tartare and oysters and I was like no we'll just have a wine bar and she's like it's not Berlin either (laughs) it's like so what we decided on was that we will do a cafe during the day with really nice sourdough sandwiches soups some sweet pastries uh, some salads and then in the nighttime we will do our small plates and so we have a lot of different small plates but two of our signature ones are still our, our oysters with sea lettuce and caviar and our beef tartare with smoked egg and, um, uh, and so and some watercress. And they still so we've many other dishes that um, small plates, but it's a little bit le- uh, less formal than an ear. Of course the the price point is is a lot is a, a lot less. and And some people have actually fallen in love with tartare now and said, like don't tell the chefs in an ear, but I, I prefer here now And I was like, don't worry, i won't I won't burst their balloon uh, or, or 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 offend their, or offend their ego. Because uh, they think that they're the best. But I mean, it's, but, like, Galway loves casual dining. And I've always known that. I mean, some cities are built for fine dining. And maybe that's London or uh, Hong Kong. Or like, you need a lot of, not only a lot of capital, but you also need um, uh, financial sectors. And you need so many, so many, so much more things in a city if you want to have a number of fine dining restaurants. And like, there are two restaurants with Michelin stars in Galway. And I would say like, that's, like, that's almost a breaking point. I mean, if you've got a third restaurant with a Michelin star in Galway, I don't know if we would all survive uh, because Galway is, a, I suppose, a very uh, artistic bohemian city and it loves casual dining. And Tartar and Cava, I suppose, are, um, are um, I suppose, testament to that. And also the many, many other wonderful uh, casual dining restaurants that we have in the city.
0: When it comes to your cooking style and technique as a chef uh who has most influenced you
1: um like i'm self-taught as a chef so i mean i certainly have like get a lot of my ideas from from reading and, and like more recently on uh from looking at stuff online and on, on instagram i mean I, there's a lot of different chefs who have influenced the way in which i cook and certainly on the the Nordic side, like chefs like René Redzepi or Magnus Nielsen, have very much informed what we do in Inir. I mean, on the other side of that, um, there's a lot of uh, Spanish books. Uh, Claudia Rowan's um, uh, book on Spain has very much been very influential for me in terms of in terms of Spanish cooking. And then closer to home, I mean, Doreen Allen's book, Myrtle Allen, Theodore Fitzgibbon, a lot of Irish chefs. That, um, that have written about Irish food, like, inform me as well. So it, it's very mixed, um, and still, I mean, even some British cooks like Nigel Slater, I mean, I, I used to collect uh, Nigel's columns in the, he's still writing in The Observer, um, and, um, uh, and The Guardian, and I used, to, I used to love that, the way in which he, I suppose, tells a story through ingredients. And, uh, and even through the time of year, and that. And I suppose I, I really I suppose felt that was uh, uh, influential to the, to the way in which I, I think about ingredients.
0: I wanted to ask you uh, what do you think your perfect meal would be if you could narrow it down to one thing? Yeah,
1: you know, I, I get asked this question a bit sometimes, and then sometimes it disappoints people in the sense that think it's going to be the most sophisticated thing in the world. But like my, my, my my one of my epiphanies through through my career as a as a cook or through my the, the process of becoming a chef was when i was 11 or 12 and it was the first time we were on holidays in tipperary which is uh in the mid in the southern mid uh midlands in in ireland and we were in this restaurant and i said to my mother i'm going to have the spaghetti bolognese and this was in the eighties in Ireland and she was like you're not going to like that you're 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 not going to eat it because everyone else was having burgers and chips and for some reason I wanted to be different I was like I'm having spaghetti bolognese. and i remember it came out and i remember eating it and um and i remember realizing i mean i don't know if i realized at the time or i realized later that that food could, could not only could food make you different but that food was different um where you were i suppose wherever people were and I grew up in, in like in a, um, I suppose in a culture where I mean my grandmother never had pasta. I, I um, my, both my grandmothers in their house, and the explosion of Italian food in the in the nineties in uh, in the late in late, ni- late early so I late late eighties and early nineties in Ireland um, was was deeply I suppose deeply affected Irish food, and, and the, the first the first place I ever worked in was an Italian restaurant when I was fifteen. And falling in love with bread and pizzas and, and all of that sort of stuff. So I've always said that my last meal will be spaghetti bolognese, just very nicely cooked. And it's still something I cook a lot at home. Um, my daughter loves it as loves it as well. I mean, when I'm in the restaurant, I cook differently. I love fish and I love shellfish. I love oysters. I love turbot cooked on the bone. I like whole. I I I suppose there is a, a kind of rustic side of me as well, where a big leg of lamb. I mean. I, I think you find a lot of chefs that work in fine dining when you ask them what they like, what they enjoy eating, it's usually the opposite of what they're cooking because there's a refinement and you get your tweezers out and you put it all on the plate and then you go home and you just want to dive into a big roast chicken and that's like, that's your your, your sweet spot and and I think it's important that people realize that, that people always think that I, I play food at home the way I play food in the restaurant and I was like, oh my God, no, I absolutely don't. Sometimes I go home and have a bowl of cereal uh, it's like there's, you know, it's it's like it's the opposite. They go, you hardly eat a bag of chips, and I was like, absolutely. Or I'm a normal person, like a, or have a Chinese or an Indian or like all of these things, and like, but certainly, um, like the, in terms of the food that gives me most comfort, it's still unfortunately Italian food. As much as I cook Spanish food over the years for a long time, I I still love the 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 warmth and the nostalgia you get from from eating eating Italian food.
0: Now, as an um, English major, uh, who is your, some of your favorite authors?
1: Well, hands down, uh, like um, it would have to be Samuel Beckett. I think I have about five hundred books on him in the house, and and there would be the clo- close number two would be James Joyce. I know now that sounds very stereotypical, but um, I I I, I fell in love with Beckett and Joyce's work um pre pre college and um. It's, it's, I suppose I, I've always loved it, um, and um, I mean, I, there's many, many different writers I love around the world. I mean, in, in terms of the, the States, uh, Cormac McCarthy's work, I, I, I really, really enjoy as well, and different German, German writers, um, boss, I, in terms of the Irish writers, and, and, and some of the literature that we use in the restaurant, I mean, the poems of Seamus Heaney as well, um I, I and there's so much food mentioned i it, when I began the book and began looking for food in in literature, you end up finding so much of it, and you didn't even realize I don't know how many times i I read um ulysses or or any of joyce's work and and didn't even think about the food and then you read it again, thinking about food, and like it's nearly on every single page and and it and it's a testament i mean I mentioned it in the Irish cookbook that that these are these authors were interested in food because they're historical documents now as well and so we can look at ulysses which is what based in 1904 published in 1922 but we can say okay wow we can we can we can look at even though we might have specific recipes we can say oh god the guys were eating this in, in 1904 um and um and that can help us broaden out our food culture so literature helps us so much and as i said to you with the first um, recipe book the, uh, um, 1688 which is in Burr Castle um, if we look at medieval literature we find references to food I, and I found a reference just one, just one reference to uh, our one example was to onion, this onion and dillus compot thing um, that was uh, mentioned in the in, the, in, in some middle, middle um, medieval text in Ireland and I don't know if it was a jam or if it was a stew, or but we ended up making a, an onion and a seaweed compost, and, and like that's just I suppose for me the, the ways in which um, literature can influence food in in a, I suppose in a, in a in a creative way.
0: JP, it's been wonderful talking to you. I really want to thank you for being on the podcast. I I would I love talking to you, and I'd love to be able to talk to you again. Thank you.
1: Listen. Thank you so much. It's been a, it's been a pleasure.
0: That was J.P. McMahon author of the Irish cookbook. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I really had a great time um, talking to JP. I would talk to him again in a heartbeat several times. Such a interesting person and his work is just truly magnificent, as I've said. Um, Very humble, um, but he could definitely um, brag more because his work, both in his cookbook, uh, his uh, menus for his restaurants, just phenomenal and also his uh, articles are just brilliant as well as his podcast so a man, a man of many hats uh, very interesting person love talking to him now on friday we're going to have another really wonderful person um Jenk somnasoy who is um, the author of the artful baker cookbook and he has his uh, wonderful um cookbook that has full of great just amazing recipes and stories and just phenomenal food photography um, And we also talk about The Golden Girls a bit uh, So you're going to want to be here on Friday For Junk uh A Turkish author and baker uh, Who's written just a spectacular One of a kind cookbook The Artful Baker you gotta, you got to be here to hear that conversation It was just fantastic And then next Monday we're going to have Emily Winston from Boychik Bagel So be here for that as well so, on that note, I will let you all go. Have a wonderful evening and happy cooking. If you like my podcast and want to contribute, we have a link on the website information where we have the bios for our guests. And you can contribute to Buy Me a Coffee, which is a website that you can um, basically give tips to the host of podcasts and other platforms if you like. So if you want to leave me um, a tip to purchase a coffee, I appreciate your gratitude. Um, If you enjoy my podcast, please um, let other people know about it, uh, share the information on social media, or tell a friend about it. Thank you very much.